One day, I will learn how to do this, but it's fun in the, in the interim, but not next Sunday. I won't learn how to do it next Sunday because next Sunday, we don't, have, we don't have service here. I just want to make you aware of that. Um, it is Christmas morning. Um, we do have, yeah, the Saturday, uh, 3 o'clock service, Christmas Eve, so please join us for that. Um, and then, yeah, come out for New Year's Day uh, pancakes, uh, the bottomless pancake, the famous bottomless pancake. Always, always more. And we'll have some gluten-free pancakes in case you're nervous. We will make sure that you poor people who can't enjoy God's glorious gift of gluten. Uh, no, I'm, I don't mean to rub it in. Um, anyways, <laughs> we are creeping ever closer to Christmas. Um, and as we've just been doing that, just, just doing this, this very simple series uh, called Awaited King, just taking time to reflect on Jesus, on who he is, what he's done. Uh, Because according to to Scripture, Jesus is this awaited king. Uh, I think that rightly captures kind of the way Scripture represents uh, represents Jesus. He is the the Messiah, the one sent to save, the one that was expected and coming to Israel. And his his, his goal, his purpose in, in coming is to fulfill all the promises that were made by God to the people uh, that, that he chose, his chosen people, the descendants of Abraham, Israel, and through them to bless the entire world. And, and when this awaited king, Jesus, is finally born, when he finally comes to do what he was born to accomplish, he's met with so many different reactions, right? And that's what the Gospels are an account of, the various ways in which people responded to Jesus and the things, the, the way they interacted with him. Uh, some people rejected Jesus. They, you know, these, these religious people, they, they knew that they were waiting for a king, but Jesus wasn't what they expected this king to be like, and, and so they rejected him. But then there were also many people, there were also many people, um, in the, especially in the account of Jesus' birth and then throughout his life, many people who, who saw Jesus and, and accepted him, who, who got what he was, who he was, what his calling was, uh, they understood This is the one. This is the awaited king. This is the king we've been waiting for. This is the Messiah sent by God to deliver on all these promises. And they received him as a gift. They received this king Jesus. Probably one of the more notable examples um, are are the shepherds, right? Remember, you you guys watch Charlie Brown, so you know, right? The shepherds are keeping watch by night. They're outside of the city, Bethlehem, where Jesus is born. Uh, Mary and Joseph have, have set up shop in a manger, in a place where, where the animals are kept, on the outskirts of Bethlehem. And then these shepherds, they're just out. They're minding their own business. And this happens, right? This is the account from Luke 2, verse 9. Then the angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. Yeah, I would be. And the angel said to them, don't be afraid, for look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all people. Today in the city of David, a Savior is born to you, who is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped tightly in cloth and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was a multitude of heavenly hosts with the angel, 
praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to people he favors. And when the angels had left them and returned to heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go straight to Bethlehem and see what has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. See, the shepherds are told plainly, clearly, something good is happening, has happened. There is good news of great joy, and that is this, that a Savior is born, this Messiah, this awaited King. He's finally come, and his birth is significant because it will mean, like these heavenly hosts, like this, all these angels proclaim, it will mean glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth. There's a consequence to this king coming into the world, and it's that God is glorified and peace is coming to earth. Glory and peace. Because Jesus is born, heaven and earth are crying out, welcoming this awaited king. Heaven and earth are finally being reconciled. God is glorified on earth as in heaven because of Jesus. And earth is filled with the peace of God, the peace that it's been longing for and has long eluded it because of Jesus. All because this baby is born, this awaited king, this child, Jesus. Because he's come, things are being, beginning to be made right. And it is good news, unequivocally good news. And so if you think about history, and I think it's true whether you're a Christian or not, whether you you believe that these things happen or not, everybody understands that there is a a experienced and lived conflict between how things are and how they ought to be. No one looks at the world and thinks, don't change a thing. This is great. Everything is perfect. Everyone feels this reality deeply, that things are not as they should be. And no one was more aware of this this problem, the problem that that, that the world was in, than, than the Jews, than these people who were awaiting their king. They knew God, and they knew that God had designed the world and created it good. And they also knew that because of the the problem of sin, the problem of rebellion and wickedness, that God's presence, which he had had created the world to be full of, had had been cut off from the world. As a consequence of sin and rebellion, the world stops working the way it was designed to work in. And the Jews, the religious Jews, because they had the scriptures revealing this to them, they understood that there was a fundamental problem. Heaven and earth were alienated from one another. Things were not as they were designed to be. This place, this earth, this world that we live in was meant to be filled with God's presence, to be a place where he was there and working and welcome. This world was just meant to be receiving and basking in the light of his presence. And these religious people, they understood particularly, not only that things were not as they should be, not as God had designed them to, but they also understood that they were called to be a part of the solution to this problem. They had a special calling. God had called Israel to be unlike the rest of the world. They were to be people who knew and experienced and lived in and welcomed God's presence more than anyone else. And through them, God was going to extend his kingdom out into the world. Through them, God was going to set this world right. 
The rest of the world, they understood, had totally rejected God, but they were called to be people who welcomed him. And that was their hope. That was their understanding of their purpose. It was their hope that, that God would be present with them. And they, they knew from their history, from the stories that they held on to, how important the presence of God was. I mean, Moses is a great example of somebody who understood this and led his people into understand this, to understand the importance of the presence of God. We see in Exodus 33, Moses having a, a discussion with God. Moses says this to the Lord. He says, look, you've told me, lead this people up, right? Because Moses was called to take his people out of captivity into the promised land, into, into a life with God, into a life where they could be his people. He says, you've told me, God, lead this people up, but you've not let me know who you will send with me. You said, I know you by name, and you've found favor with me. Now, if I have indeed found favor with you, please teach me your ways, and I will know you so that I may find favor with you. Now consider that this nation is your people. And he replied, that is God replied, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And Moses, knowing how important the presence of God was, would be for his people, says this, if your presence does not go, do not make us go up from here. How will it be known that I and your people have found favor in, in, in you unless you go with us? And your people will be distinguished by this from all other people on the face of the earth. And the Lord answered Moses, I will do this very thing that you've asked. For you have found favor with me, and I know you by name. And then Moses said, please, let me see your glory. Israel understood that God was doing something through them, restoring his glory and his presence into the world. The glory of God, God's manifest presence with his people, has always been a central concern for Israel, for God's people, because they understood without God's presence, without being the kinds of people who welcome God and know him, who, who he, he calls us his own and we're his, who are fully his, then we have no real lasting hope in this world. See, they had a pattern of hope that they understood, and it's a really simple one. I've put it into a kind of a mathematical problem. This was the pattern of Israel's hope. Us plus God is hope. If we are people who are present with God, then we can be people who can have hope in this world. They understood this clearly. We have to be a people in whom and with whom God is present if we're going to have hope for this world, to be a part of what God is doing. If God is going to transform this world, then we need him with us. And while Israel certainly knew this formally, their whole rites and rituals and, and, and everything that defined them as a people was built around um, experiencing God's presence and welcoming in. They, they, they knew this very well. While they knew this, they regularly fell into a pattern of just ignoring God. Ignoring his presence. And that's pretty much what all the prophets are warning Israel against. We, we see a really good example of this in Ezekiel chapter 10. After Jerusalem has been destroyed and the people are carried away to Babylon, Ezekiel the prophet has this vision that explains what's happened because, because obviously this is not as it should be. The world where, where, where Jerusalem is destroyed and God's people who, who God has made promises to have been carried away, that's not the way things should be. But, but um, 
this vision is explaining what hap- what's ha- has happened to the people. And what's happened is this, that over the years, Israel forgot their hope. They forgot that this is the one thing that they could stand on. That if they were people who sought God with all their hearts, who, who, who put him first, who put their hope in him, that they would just like be safe and secure, that they would have everything that God promised. They had forgotten their calling. And instead of clinging to their hope, the presence of God with them, they just messed with their hope. They, they, they inserted things that were not worthy of hope. They, uh, they, they filled in the blank. They filled in the blank of this, this equation. I, yeah, like this, right? Instead of us plus God, it was going to equal hope that they messed with it. And they, they just filled in the blank with another thing. They substituted wealth. If, 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 I, if we have wealth, then that should be hope. If we have power, self-righteousness, if we have, have, have sex, if we have idolatry, whatever thing... We see actually throughout the prophets that the prophets are always just calling out the many idols that Israel had, the things that they put in the blank here to fulfill their hope, which would never actually be a solid basis for hope. They took the place where God was supposed to have in their lives, and they put other things in there. They inserted other things where God should have been. They abandoned their hope. They turned their hearts from God. They put their hope in false things. And interestingly, and I think it's really fascinating, what we see in Ezekiel and and most of the other prophets is that as the people abandon their hope, God just takes the hint and he leaves. We see in Ezekiel 10 this picture of the glory of God, which was filling the temple, leaving the temple, because God's presence was not welcome in Israel anymore. God's presence wasn't welcome there because they, because they wanted other things. They were putting their hope in other things. He leaves the temple, he leaves the city, and he allows them to be overtaken by their, their sin, their idolatry, to have their false hopes. And what's fascinating is that no one knows this has happened until Ezekiel sees it in this vision, you know, several years later. No one has noticed that God has left the people because the people have not put any of their hope in him. They didn't even notice until after Jerusalem fell and after they're carried away to Babylon and after they realize, what happened? Something clearly has gone wrong. But what God does is he shows this vision to Ezekiel not to shame them or make them feel bad about their failings, right? This is not the point of this book. This is not a guilt book. This is a hope book. It's, it's, it's a book that's meant to calibrate our hopes and put, teach us to put our hopes in the right thing. God is showing this to Ezekiel, the prophet, to tell the people to renew their hope, to set their hope right yet again, to stir it up. See, God wants to renew that hope, the only hope that they actually have. He tells Ezekiel to tell the exiles, these these people of God who have been carried away, captive by their enemies, that there will be a day when God will bring them back into the land. God will be present with them again. Their hope will be renewed. He explains it in Ezekiel 11. He says, in that day, I will give them integrity of heart. I will put in them a new spirit. 
I will remove their heart of stone and their body, uh, from their bodies and give them a heart of flesh so that they will follow my statutes and keep my ordinances and practice them. And they will be my people and I will be their God. The hope that Israel was always called to, that the glory of God, the presence of God would be with them, go before them, is rekindled over and over and over again. That is the heartbeat of Scripture, that we would have our hope put in the right things in God's return, in His work. Because God knows that he's created the world and he's created people and he's created Israel and he's created me and you to be people who require and lean on his presence and who know his glory. God's presence with men makes for their peace. When God comes into the life of a person, they are restored, their hope is renewed, life can go on as it was meant to be when God is present with his people. That's how the world is. Understand this, though. I'm not just saying God's people understand that God's presence is nice or preferable. What I'm saying is that the Bible makes it extremely clear is that life simply cannot be sustained in the way that we, it is supposed to be sustained, that is, eternally. And life cannot be lived well without God's presence. As a consequence of what life is and how it actually works, God is indispensable to your life and to my life and to Israel's life and to everyone's life. We are dependent upon him. Israel had a calling to be present with God, to welcome God, to worship God, but Israel was also a part of God's plans to restore that presence into the whole world because he really and truly is the only real hope that this world has. God's presence with people is the only hope that we have. And think, you know, like, let's just think of a different example. Think of our solar system. I think I have a little diagram of our solar system. Obviously not the scale. Um, but if we think of our solar system, uh, our solar system literally revolves around the sun. That's why it's a solar system, right? And in that system, the sun does at least two really important things. First is that by virtue of the sun's mass, right, its size, it creates a gravitational field. And the planets, so this is fun, right? This is science. Welcome. Welcome to science class. Um, it creates a gravitational field, and the planets in our solar system revolve around the sun. The planets are caught up in orbit around the sun. And if that gravitational field just suddenly disappeared, these planets would just go on their current trajectory. They would just continue on. They would, they would cease to orbit around the sun. And secondly, the sun, along with you know, the combination of our, our atmosphere, creates life-sustaining conditions here on this planet. If the Earth were, were a little bit closer or a little bit further from the sun, life could not be sustained. But because of where we sit in our orbit around the sun, our planet is habitable. Life is possible. See, see, the, the planet Earth exists in a system of dependence upon the sun in the same way you and I exist in a system of dependence upon God. 
our life is by design one of dependence, to be a full person, a, a person full of life, the life that Jesus promises to people, a person who is, is, is fulfilled and, and who has eternal hope, requires God's presence. Earth is livable because of its relationship to the sun, and life is livable, eternally livable, full of hope, full of joy, full of life abundant that Jesus promises because of our relationship to God himself. You are in a kind of relationship with God that is about dependence. But what the world has done and what we've done and we experience so often is that we have rejected God. We've, we've, we've set our hearts to pursue other things. We've not sought the Lord. We've not tried to stay in this place of trust and dependence upon him. We've put our hope in anything and everything except him. We've set our lives to revolve around things other than God. That's the consequence of sin. That's what we've done. That's why the world is broken. And God knows it. And it's for this reason, to heal this wound and to fix this problem that Jesus is born. He's born to save the world from itself and to draw us back into his orbit, into a place where we might have life and peace, where we could depend on him yet again. The world could be made right yet again. Matthew 4, 16, 17, quoting Isaiah the prophet, talking about Jesus, says this, The people who live in darkness have seen a great light. And for those living in the land of the shadow of death, the light has dawned. And from then on, Jesus began to, to preach, Repent, because the kingdom of heaven has come near. Jesus is born into the world. He is proclaimed as good news. And he is like the sun finally coming back to us. We've grown accustomed to darkness. This world has grown accustomed to darkness. We've forgotten that we were made, made to be people who are present with God, who live in his light, who know his warmth and his love and his sustaining grace and kindness. And Jesus has come for the purpose of setting it right again. That glory to God would be the cry of heaven and on earth. That peace would overflow from heaven down onto earth as the world is reconciled and as things are made right. Things are made as they should be. This is the way that God is intervening in history. He's sending his one and only son to be with people, to restore his presence into the world. And he is renewing this pattern of hope that Israel forgot that we so often forget. When Jesus is welcomed in the world, received as an awaited king, given his rightful place, then suddenly hope is alive again. Life is given again. Peace is sustained again. And God, God is glorified. And the only thing that we have to do to have him present in our lives is like, like Jesus is saying here, to repent this kingdom that God is establishing, renewing, it's a near kingdom. Jesus is going along around proclaiming that there would be repentance, hope renewed. And I've got to tell you, we've just like 
like messed with this word repentance so much, I think we really need to come back to a biblical definition of what repentance is. And repentance is not, it is not moral backflips. It is not um, feeling really bad or feeling really guilty. Maybe sometimes those things might, might follow from repentance, but repentance is before all of that. Repentance is simple. It is simply seeing what the light has shown to be true and responding with, yes, I recognize the truth of this thing. Recognizing what's been done by God to set things right and accepting it as a solution. It's as simple as looking out your window on a a day that you expect to be cold and awful where you're already putting on your jacket and seeing, look, the sun has come up, the world has warmed up, things are changing, and then just you changing accordingly. I take off my jacket, I walk outside, I let the sun warm me up. It's a simple thing of recognizing what has happened, how things are different, how there can be hope yet again because I understand that this pattern of Israel is, is, is the offer made to me that if I, if we seek Jesus, welcome him in, trust in him, then we can have hope yet again. Jesus has come to be present with us, to redeem us, to save people and bring them back into the orbit of God, back into his kingdom. He's inviting us in to restore what has been lost because of sin. And it's that simple. We're people who've seen what God has done and we're letting his work His action, his intervention in the world change us. His promises transform us. His presence make a difference in us. Church, do not abandon your hope. This is the only hope we have. Your hope is the presence of God. Your hope is the intervention of Jesus. It is a gift given to us, proclaimed by angels. And there are so many ways that we can forget sin's power over us, if we let it have power over us, is that we let it mess with the simple things that we've been made, made clear by Jesus. Don't forget that your power is your hope, and your hope is in Jesus. Jesus is our hope. I was on a Zoom call um, with a pastor from England and a bunch of other, other pastors um, a guy named Pete, Pete Hughes, and he, he t- teaches, uh, he works in London, and London is like, just like this huge secular city, right? And um, he said this about the, about the church. He says, the church is embracing secular narratives masquerading as kingdom narratives, and those narratives are emptying the church of its power. And I think, I think that's right on. See, we have to understand, if we're going to understand the gospel, if we're going to receive the kingdom with repentance, then we just have to have total clarity on on what is the pattern that we live in. And we are so good at, in our sophistication, messing with this, replacing Jesus, replacing God, replacing the simple idea of, of trust and receiving and listening to God and obeying God and putting him first above all things. We, we replace that with, with, with lots of other ideas. In our culture, we have 
secular gospels, you know, false gospels. Some of them are political. There's, there's the political stuff on the left, and then there's the political stuff on the right, and all of it's false. We have one good news. We have one hope. That is that God would come down and be present with us, restore us, and renew us, and that we would just keep trusting in him. Today, tomorrow, the next day, no matter what seasons change in culture, no matter what's going on, no matter how we feel, no matter if we are discouraged, our hope is always the same. Our power is in sticking to this. Trust, faith, hope in Jesus. Our power, our pattern of life is this simple calling. We are seeking God's presence with us. We are are asking him to work and accepting what he's doing. John 1.14 says this about Jesus. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory, the glory of the one and only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Indeed, we have all received grace upon grace from his fullness, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the one and only Son, who is himself God and is at the Father's side. He has revealed him. Jesus He's revealing God because Jesus is God. He sits at the Father's side. He has all the characteristics, all the attributes of God. He is revealing God into the world. He's being present with people. And he is, we simply do this, right? I love this. This is the preamble to the book of John. The whole thing, John is summing up, summing up his message, and it's this simple thing. We observed his glory. We just saw how true it was that he truly is the fulfillment of his promise, that he is glory, the glory of God come down to earth. We observed it, and we received grace. We received forgiveness. We received his kindness. We had hope renewed and restored. This trust, trust in Jesus, changes everything because it is the restoration of all things. And repentance is accepting that your life is not the same as it once was. You aren't living the same story. You aren't like a planet without a sun, without an orbit, inhospitable, inhabitable, uninhabitable. That's it, uninhabitable. We have a better story to live. And I want us to just, as, as we wrap up here, the worship team can come on up. I want to reflect on this for a second. Because the fact is that the gospel is really about the things that we can observe that have been made clear, proclaimed by angels. That is that Jesus, God himself, has come down, taken on flesh, humbled himself as a servant, and then gone to a cross to pay for my sin. Take it away from me and reconcile me to God. Restore me to his presence. And that is like, like, 
even as a Christian, I've, I've sometimes wondered, because I, I live in this tension, I, I think you probably live in it too, between what ought to be and what is. And so I think about my life, and I think about what Jesus has done. And it seems like, well, okay, Jesus died for me, he took away my sin, and, and the promises of God seem, seem to be that like, this is going to change and transform me. And then sometimes I, I look at my own life and I think, well, that doesn't, I don't know if that's happening the way it should be. And I start to wonder, what's going on here? And I think that what Scripture makes very clear is that as we continue to hold on to this hope that Jesus is everything he promises to be, that he is God with us, that he is making all things right, actually that we start to live in this transformed life. We start to live in this renewed life. We receive this new life. We're like, like the language of Scripture, John 3 talks about how it's like being born again. So what does that really look like? And I, I, you know, ask Leslie Newbegin, how does that look? And, and, and Leslie Newbegin is going to respond to me. He says this about this new life. And I just wanted to reflect on this, this little bit as, as we wrap up here. I know that this is a new life for three reasons. For its basis, its principles, and its goal are quite different from the old. Its basis, its starting point, is that the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. What we've observed and what we've seen to be true, what is proclaimed by angels, is that Jesus, the Son of God, God himself, came down, took on flesh to go on a mercy mission. A mercy mission based in love to the and love to the degree that God has come down, he died on a cross, he gave himself for me, for you, to reconcile the world to itself. He goes on, its starting point is that amazing gift, something that Jesus has done. And therefore, its goal is simply to give thanks for that amazing gift. Its goal, the goal of my life, this new life, this life which is was renewed in the presence of God is simply to give thanks for that amazing gift. And I love what he says this year. He says, he says its goal is not anymore that I should be a good man. That's been given up. And like, man, to, be a, to be a good man, to be a, a good woman, is, it can be just as much of an idol as anything else. To be a rich man, to be a, a controlling man, a powerful man, a, a man who doesn't have to work too hard. Or woman. All the, woman, all these things. Sorry. He wrote this in the 70s. We can forgive him. Um, See, my life used to operate according to certain principles. I had to prove myself to me all the time. I had to prove myself to God all the time. I had to prove myself to, to people, to family, to um, people I wanted to admire me. That's, that's, that was what formed the basis for almost everything that I did and thought. I had to strive. I had to become someone else. But because we have a new life now, we have a new basis for hope. The basis is what Jesus has done. And the goal of my life 
is to simply just be in the presence of God and to be thankful for what has been given to me. To be done with the old self who is always trying to make things right in my own strength, but now I know that has been given up. There is no future for me as a good man because I am no longer the center of the picture. It's not just me trying to get ahead. Jesus has come into my life. The goal of my life is Jesus, that he should be glorified. And it's principle. How my life operates now is by faith. Faith which looks away from myself to him. Faith which simply relies on what he has done and will do. I have often wondered if faith is really enough to make my life meaningful, to transform me from the inside out. And the more I think about it and I understand what faith really does, what the gift of Jesus really does, and, and, and the goal of life transformed in his presence, the way it really affects it, I, I totally get it now. Because life without God operates according to principles that will never satisfy. But life, according to the gift of Jesus Christ, is abundant life, secure life, full life. It's changing me from the inside out. I'm becoming a satisfied person, satisfied in what God has given. No longer just trying to, to work my way into the good graces of God, but simply thanking him. Living a life responding to grace. This is the faith that we receive. This is the good news that we have. The, the good news that these shepherds, these nobodies, were so thankful to hear about. That God was finally come back. He's restored. He's forgiven. We put faith in Jesus. We put faith in what God has done. And we become new people. People whose lives are changed from the inside out. I want to encourage you this week, you know I, know, I know the week of Christmas is busy, but would you consider how Jesus has changed everything? And would you consider, honestly, like, if he really, if he really has, and like, whether you're a Christian or not, like, it's, it's simply something that we receive from God on the basis of faith, you know? Whether you've never had faith in Jesus, like, you, you want to put your faith in Jesus, your trust in him do that, or if you are just like in this place where, uh, maybe I've just forgotten. Maybe I've forgotten what this is really all about. Would you just consider that this week? Would you sit with that this week? Would you think about what God has done this week? And think and sit in your heart and ask God to really like be present with you? And would you just like try to work in your heart just to like be thankful to him, just to receive what he's done. Because that's like the invitation. It sounds so simple. Like, 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 could that really change your life? And what I'm here to tell you is that yes, yes, that can totally change your life. That can make you a new person. Faith makes us new. We're called to it, called to a renewed hope and to receive this king. He's the only one we've ever been waiting for. And he's come down. So Jesus, I thank you for your word. Lord, would you impress it upon us that what you've done is something remarkable, Lord. You've forgiven sin and you've made us new people, people who are just not the same, Lord. We are um, redeemed from the old ways and brought into a new way, a new and living way of faith and hope. Trust in you, God. Lord, teach us what that means to trust in you, God. Amen.